One of my uh, absolute favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. Any other fan? There's one fan here. That's an old, older movie uh, these days. But Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne, uh, played uh, by actor Tim Robbins, is convicted of a double homicide. And uh, if you'll remember one scene in the movie, if you haven't seen it, uh, one scene in the movie, uh, Andy breaks into the warden's office, you remember, and he has a record player of which he plays Mozart, takes it up to the loudspeaker, and Mozart is, you know... Uh, Broadcast, thank you, is the word I was looking for, Jim. Thank you. Mozart is broadcast uh, to the entire uh, prison compound. Everything just kind of stops still as Mozart is played, and eventually they break open the office, and, and Andy is sent to solitary confinement for uh, two weeks. As he gets out of solitary confinement and he comes back to the mess hall to lunch with his buddies there at the table, uh, they ask him, uh, well, first of all, they say, why couldn't you play some Hank Williams or something? And he said, well, they got to me before I could take requests, but uh, otherwise I would have. But they say, well, how was it? And he says, actually, it was the easiest time I ever did. And they reply, whatever. Uh, how so? And he said, well, I had Mr. Mozart to keep me company. And one friend says, so they let you take that little record player down there? And he said, no, but it's in here. And it's in here. That's the beauty of music. They can't get that from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? And Red, who's played by Morgan Freeman, you'll remember Red replies, well, I played the harmonica for a little while, but lost interest. It didn't seem to make much sense in here. Andy says, well, in here is where it makes, it makes the most sense. You need it so you don't forget. Forget what, he replied. Forget that there are places that aren't made out of stone, that there are places... Uh, inside that they can't get to, that it's yours. Red says, what are you talking about? And he says, hope. Red replies back, hope. Let me tell you something, friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's of no use on the inside. You better get used to that idea. And Andy says, like Brooks did, you recall Brooks took his life. Hope. Hope is not only a powerful word, but it's a powerful idea. It's a power in our hearts that can keep us from going on. And you know that Andy had that hope. He had that hope and he eventually escaped that prison because he had a view of what was on the outside. He had hope that sustained him. And if we're going to face tough things in our life, and we're going to go through battles, whether they're medical or whether they're just the trials of surviving and trying to thrive in a predominantly pagan world, we are going to have to have hope. And hope, in, biblically speaking, is not wishful thinking, but hope, biblically speaking, is a confident expectation that God is working all things out for our good and for his glory. We need hope. We need that confident expectation, particularly in these times. I hear that there's a, uh, a big football game today at noon. Perhaps you've heard about this. Uh, that's why some of these seats are empty. Shame on them. Uh, 
Imagine for a moment that uh, today at noon, you have been given divine revelation and you know how that game is gonna turn out. You know, you've been, you've been told by God that the Cowboys, though they will struggle, no doubt, will win by a field goal or they will eke it out at the last minute with a touchdown, but they are certain to win. If you had that divine... Oh, <laughs> uh, where am I again? Yeah, okay. The headquarters of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, if you had that divine hope, if you had that revelation from God that no matter what happened, no matter how many fumbles there were, how many bad calls there were, you knew even in that last moment, at that last pass that would score a touchdown for the Cowboys, they were going to win. If you had that hope in the second quarter at halftime, in the third quarter, you might grieve those fumbles. Uh, you might be angry about those poor calls, but you would have a confidence inside knowing that you know how the game ends. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, to remind you this morning that as believers, we know how the game ends. Amen. We know who wins. And it's true that the way you view the future, the way you view the end will largely determine how you face the present. We need hope. We need hope, and that's uh, what Daniel offers us as we look again in his life this morning. We come to understand that because we know the end, we can endure the path. Because we know the end, we can endure the path. In Daniel's life, uh, the trial came as the Babylonians attacked his home city, Daniel was in Jerusalem. He was a part of the royalty of Jerusalem. And the, the story begins in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. We looked at this briefly last week, but go ahead and turn with me. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 sets the scene for the entire book in Daniel's life. Verse 1 says this, In the third year of the reign Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It doesn't give us a lot of detail. It doesn't say it in flowery language or a lot of commentary. But the fact is that Daniel's crisis came when Nebuchadnezzar, this evil king and this superpower ruler of Babylon, came and not only sacked his home city, which was God's people, God's city, not only sacked and sieged it, but also deported Daniel and many of his friends, maybe up to 10,000 people, deported them to Babylon. And Daniel faced this crisis, was taken to this foreign land, to this pagan land where he was placed in the king's court. I was uh, actually checking out at Sprouts a couple weeks ago as I noticed the magazines to the side. And one of the magazines uh, there at the checkout line was a National Geographic magazine that uh, had the cover that said this. I think we have a slide of this, the, uh, the most influential figures of ancient history. And I thought, well, that's interesting. This is a couple weeks ago as I'm preparing for this. And I flip it open and look to the table of contents and guess who one of the people named in National Geographic's magazine was? Nebuchadnezzar. What we're reading about here at this time in history is history. This happened. This is what even National Geographic tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was known for. He's listed uh, among ancient figures like, this is uh, uh, Augustus Caesar on the cover here. Also, people like Emperor Constantine, Cyrus the, the Great, King Tut, Darius I, Ramses, P Pericles, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, 
and philosophers Confucius and Socrates. Nebuchadnezzar was a real guy. And not only was he a real guy, but he was a real bad guy. Uh, he was the superpower. He was the king. He had all the power of his day as the reigning superpower of Daniel's time. He was the one, of, one of the most influential people of ancient times and the most popular of kings of the Babylonian Empire, with the exception of perhaps Hammurabi, who was a thousand years at least prior to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon were the eighth wonder of the world, and Babylon itself ha- becomes known throughout history, throughout the history of the Bible. Babylon becomes known as the personification of evil. At the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 18 of Revelation, as uh, kingdoms fall, as the end of times nears, verse 2 and 3 says this, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. And the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about the fall of Babylon, the personification of evil being Babylon, this wicked empire. And God has somehow allowed this wicked empire to take over his chosen people. A kingdom more wicked, more rebellious than God's own people has has disciplined them and deported them to foreign pagan lands. Not only was uh, Nebi powerful, but he was also obviously proud. Uh, Every building, every brick, or they say 90% of the bricks were stamped with his name and the the remains of Babylon. He built a statue and required all to bow down and to worship his statue. The rest of the Babylonians and the rest of the ancient world at the time would have loved the opportunity to vote for the lesser of two evils, a Hillary or a Donald, compared to Nebuchadnezzar. This guy was bad. And yet Daniel is is taken captive by him. He is taken to uh, Babylon, but he, in his commitment to God, is resolved uh, not only to be there, but to represent God. So we find out in uh, verse 9 that he resolves himself not to defile himself in the king's court, and he works his way up. He becomes, through his excellence, through his keen insight and his gifts of interpretation of dreams, he, he gains prominence in this pagan empire, and is promoted in a pagan empire. He's working for a pagan king. He has these incredible gifts and this credible, incredible opportunity. And his story is summarized at the end of chapter 6 of Daniel like this. Daniel chapter 6 verse 28 says this. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. He prospered. He's in a pagan empire in a foreign land for a very pagan, brutal, evil king. And yet this faithful follower of Yahweh is able not only to survive, but to thrive. And in the words of this book, prosper. How does he do that? How does he not become contaminated? How does he work his way up the ladder and have such prominence? How does he prosper? Well, one of the things that we see here is that Daniel had this incredible hope, 
this incredible confidence, this incredible uh, confidence in the sovereignty of God and what God was doing throughout the kingdoms, even beyond the immediate moment and the immediate catastrophe that he was facing. Daniel was a man of hope. We see the largely the reason for that hope as we go into verse 2 of chapter 1. Look again with me at verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, hand with, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to, ha- to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So he's been def- deported, but they's also, they've, they've raided the temple with all the expensive things, and they've taken it to Babylon, and they put it in the temple of a false god. But we see the hint of Daniel's hope, the hint of Daniel's confidence right there at the beginning of verse 2. Look at it again with me. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. As Daniel looks upon all the evil that's happening, upon all his trials and trouble, how does he interpret it? He sees that ultimately God is sovereign in it. Nebuchadnezzar has sacked their land, but ultimately it's God, it's the Lord that has given them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He says, in spite of the trials, in spite of the disaster, I know that God is still sovereign and in control even in this mess. So he has hope and he's able to sustain his faith and be faithful in a pagan empire because he knows that ultimately, even though I don't like this, God is is in control. Daniel knew and Daniel served a sovereign God. If we look on, if you scroll back, scroll down to verses eight and nine, we see in verse eight his resolve. It says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And look at verse 9 again and see the repeated phrase. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. How did Daniel rise to prominence? How did Daniel get favor and compassion in the eyes of the chief of the eunuchs? The phrase is the same. God gave him compassion and favor in the eyes of the king and in the eyes of the chief eunuch. Again, God's sovereignty. So Daniel asks if he could have a different diet and he's, he convinces the, the chief eunuch, all right, let's try this for 10 days. And you look on later uh, in the chapter, verse 14, we'll pick it up there. It says, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who were, who were eating the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And look again at verse 17, where we see the same phrase again. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. Again, God gave Daniel these abilities. God gave Daniel these opportunities. Even in the midst of disaster, God is behind the scenes and intricately involved working things and working on behalf of Daniel and on behalf of his people. Daniel knew and served a sovereign God. As I said last week, quoting Larry Osborne, God's in control of who's in control. 
God's in control of who's in control. Ultimately, we have to bow down at every situation, whether it's going into surgery, whether it's the loss of a job, or whether it's relational trials or family strife or whatever. Ultimately, we have to bow down our knees at the sovereignty of God and say, God, I don't like it, but I know that if you wanted to stop it, you could, that you're sovereign even over these things. The sovereignty of God, I could take you to multiple places throughout the scripture where this idea of God being in control and God being sovereign over the things even that we don't like, the good as well as the bad. But the sovereignty of God in the Bible is given not to confound our mind, but ultimately to comfort our hearts. We get all wound up about how can this work? How can evil people do these things and God being good, how can he allow that to happen or how can he cause that to happen and how does that work out with man's responsibility and God's power and God's goodness? Does that make God evil if he allows these evil things to happen? How does that all work out in our head? And and we hear the sovereignty of God in our modern minds and we think, how do we put that together? How can God do that? But the scriptures, they don't have that problem. They show this tension of man's works and man's efforts all working intricately and in harmony somehow, some mysterious way with God's ultimate sovereignty. And, the, and it's given to us, not again to confuse us, but to comfort our hearts that even in difficult times, God is telling us, I'm in control and I've got a plan. And you may not like where you are today, but I'm headed towards an end. And because we know God and because we know the end, we can endure the path. Because we know the end, we can endure the path. In no place in Scripture does it look more confusing and more crazy and just out of control in terms of the sovereignty of God than we look at the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ, we see the the melding together of human responsibility and God's sovereignty as men put God on the cross, put Jesus on the cross, but by the sovereign plan and decree of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. I just want to show you this clearly. As Jesus goes to the cross, imagine what his followers were thinking on that Friday. Acts chapter 2. But the scriptures present the central act of our faith, the the cross and the resurrection, not only as evil perpetrated against Jesus, but also as a sovereign plan of God. Acts 2, uh, verse 23, we'll pick it up there. Acts 2, 23 says this. Peter is preaching and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see that there? All in one verse. The cross and the means by which God would save us is the definite foreknowledge, definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet, who killed him? You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. They were culpable for their actions. They were responsible for the evil put upon Jesus Christ. But ultimately, it was a divine plan of God that he should suffer and we should be forgiven through his death, burial, and resurrection. Flip over also to Acts chapter 4. We see this again. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Again, human responsibility and divine sovereignty put right next to each other in tension, in harmony though. Verse 27, again. Uh, As believers are gathered together, verse 27, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had, pre had predestined to take place. These believers are gathered together and they're beginning to be perse persecuted. But as they pray, they're saying this, your servant, Jesus, has been sent to the cross. How? By Herod and Pontius Pilate. And the Gentiles are responsible, but also the people of Israel are responsible. But they, what they have done, according to verse 28, is still whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That confounds our minds. But at that place is the glory of our salvation. Imagine what those disciples thought on Thursday night, on Friday, as the man that they had followed for three years went to the cross and they thought, it's over. Nada, the end, all gone. But that was Friday. And on Saturday, their hopes were dashed. But what happened? As the old preacher said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? And if you interpret what happened on Friday and Saturday without Sunday, you don't have the hope of the gospel. And folks, we live today between Friday and Sunday. Yes, Jesus has resurrected. He has ascended to the Father. But Sunday hasn't quite come again. But Sunday's coming again when Jesus returns to this earth and sets up his perfect kingdom. It's Friday. It's Saturday. But Sunday's coming. Amen. There's hope because of Jesus and because of his promise. See, the sovereignty of God is not meant to confound our minds, but it's meant to comfort our hearts that no matter what we're going through, God is still on his, on his throne. God is still in control, and he's got this. And that, folks, is what one theologian has said is the pillow that we lay our head upon at night. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which we lay our head at night and go to sleep and think, God, I don't understand, but I trust that you are in control, that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose and for your ultimate glory. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which we lay our head in comfort and hope. He's got it. Let me offer to you quickly a couple hope killers. A couple hope killers, things that, that get our eyes and get our hearts off of our future hope. And the first one being spiritual myopia. What do I mean by spiritual myopia? That means, and I, uh, maybe I'm the only one that can identify this, but you're going through this trial and it's kind of all you can see. It's, it's, it's like glasses and, and uh, blinds and all you can see is the, the, the current struggle. It's spiritual myopia. It's just single focus. I can't believe I'm going through this trial and you're just focused on one thing and you've forgotten what? The hope of the future. That's spiritual myopia that allows your, your eyes to be totally fixed upon the present without thought of God's faithfulness in the past or God's promises for the future. The second hope killer is spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia where you, you're in that crisis and you forgot the past. 
You forgot all the ways that God has brought you through trials and all his faithfulness in the past. The children of Israel were terrible about this, that God had delivered them out of Egypt and all throughout their deliverance. The further they get away from Egypt, the more they grumble and they forget God's provision and how God had delivered them. They forget and we forget and we get myopic. And what we need is the future hope because the way that we see the end will determine largely the way we see the present. The way we see God's faithfulness in the past will give us hope for what's going on right now in the present. Daniel had that hope. He had this rock-solid confidence in the sovereignty of God, even though, as any Jewish person would have told you, this is terrible. We're out of our land. We have no temple We have no synagogue. The law has been taken from us. It's only in our memory. I'm serving an evil pagan king who wants me to learn the occult and witchcraft. And yet God is sovereign and he's working his plan even when it totally confounds me. Daniel's hope was not ultimately in the kingdom in Jerusalem. It was not certainly not in the kingdom of Babylon, and his hope would not be in the kingdom of Persia, who would soon overtake the Babylonians. But Daniel's hope was in the kingdom of God promised to him clearly. Read along with me, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel 2, verse 44 says this. That's Acts 2. Excuse me. (laughs) Daniel 2, verse 44 says this. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these former kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. What is he talking about? He's talking about a kingdom that will have no end. That's not the kingdom of the Babylonians. That's not the kingdom of the Persians. That's not the Roman Empire. And it's not the empire of America. It's the kingdom of God that will last forever. And he had a confidence in that kingdom that was, come, that was to come, even in the mess that was, that was today. Flip over also to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. The same thing is said here at the end. Daniel 7, 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom, the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. The saints of the most high will inherit a kingdom and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Our hope cannot be in any pagan kingdom. Our hope cannot be in any Less than perfect king, less than perfect candidate, less than perfect president. Our hope ultimately is in the perfect king to come, the kingdom of God. And it's that kind of confidence that will help us live faithfully as Daniel lived in the culture that we find ourselves in. Because we know the end, we can endure the path. Jesus himself at his trial said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And we may be citizens of the United States of America, but ultimately our first loyalty is to the kingdom of God. 
And that makes us great citizens here, but it makes us citizens whose hope is not here, but whose hope is in the kingdom of God. How do we thrive? We trust a sovereign God and we hope in a greater kingdom. Spoiler alert, um, Andy Dufresne escapes from prison, right? He escapes from prison, but he leads Red to this, this letter that he's buried in this secret place. And Red goes and he, he buries the little box and he finds the, the letter that Andy has written to him. And in that letter, Andy says this. He says, remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And if we're going to survive, if we're going to thrive in this culture, we've got to have a rock-solid hope and a sovereign God and a kingdom not of this world. Let's pray. Father God, I, uh, I don't know how people survive, much less thrive in this world without the hope of your kingdom. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know the gospel, that has not embraced Jesus as the king, that they would find hope in Jesus and that no matter what trial they face or no matter what trial or confusion we face this morning in our lives, we would find our hope in you, that we would trust your sovereign goodness and that we would hope in your perfect kingdom to come where cancer will be no more, where crying will be no more, where suffering will be no more, where relational strife will be no more. But we will be perfect in a perfect kingdom, worshiping our perfect God. God, that's our hope. And apart from that hope, God, I, I don't know what hope we have. Please impress it upon our heart. Please apply it where we need this morning that we would be people like Daniel. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray.